Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your desperately evil host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Not a kind and benevolent host today. <laughs> joining me in studio is... Uh, Joe Manis, and don't mess with me. <laughs> also joining us in studio is... Tim Lloyd, mess with me. St. Louis Public Radio reporter. And... Joining us today is the Missouri Political Universe's biggest mountain goat fan, mountain goats fan. Very impressive. Yes, Jake Zimmerman, St. Louis County Assessor and candidate for Missouri Attorney General. Now, here's how I know that you're a mountain goats fan. When you sent me an email like in 2007 about something, probably about how I used to um, use headlines in the old CDT politics blog and reference music to it. And you were like, why don't you reference the Mountain Goats, which is a band that at the time I'd never heard of. And frankly, I've never listened to any of their songs. But You're missing out. But it does show that you have an a, a eclectic taste in music. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that is fair to say to the, uh, to the consternation of my wife and most of the rest of my extended family who don't share my taste in well, music. <laughs> well, we have now spent one minute talking about an inside joke from 2007. But yeah, we're, we're, we're rolling right rolling. along. Okay. But, yeah. But, but, First, yeah, we'd, uh, Jake Zimmerman has actually been one of the rising stars in Democratic politics in Missouri for quite some time. So tell us a little bit about your background, your history, and of course the all-important question— where you went to high school. And now we know it is a St. Louis political <laughs> podcast. Well, I, uh, I grew up in St. Louis County, born and bred. My, uh, my traumatic move as a child was when I was three years old, my parents moved exactly two blocks down the street, uh, and I'm still in therapy trying to get over the dislocation shock. From where to where? Yeah. Uh, in the Moorlands neighborhood in Clayton, right by the Glenridge Elementary School. So I'm a, I'm a proud product of the Clayton Public Schools uh, from, uh, from kindergarten all the way through uh, my senior year. And I, uh, I spent a few years on both coasts. I came back home in... Well, tell us what you were doing. <laughs> I, uh, college was uh, Claremont McKenna in Southern California. And uh, I did some, uh, some D.C. political internships. Most amusingly, I was, a, I was a White House intern in Bill Clinton's White House shortly after Monica Lewinsky had been an intern, <laughs> but shortly <laughs> before... Um, anybody found out about it. So I was 21. This is the biggest news. This is huge. I was 21 years old, and I was very proud of myself. But you're, con you're concealing a very important attribute about yeah. yourself. You're a Harvard Law School graduate. I was going to get there. Yes. I was, I was wondering if you're ashamed of that fact. Well, no, it's Harvard, Monica Lewinsky. I was trying Harvard. to tell my more shameful story first, which was that I thought I was such a big deal, and I was so proud to be a White House intern. Uh -huh. And then six months later, White House intern became a bit of a national joke. Continue. But yes, then I went to I went to Harvard for law school. I graduated in 2000. I came back home. And since then, I have variously been a lawyer in private practice, a consumer fraud prosecutor in the attorney general's office, legal counsel to former Governor Holden, a candidate for the St. Louis County Council, a member of the Missouri legislature, and now the county assessor, so the punchline is I, I can't seem to hold a job. Now, <laughs> you know, I haven't encountered many Harvard Law School graduates. You're one, and former Representative Rachel Storch was the other one. Is there any reason why Missouri isn't littered with more Harvard Law School graduates? Is it, is it just that they found higher-paying, more lucrative jobs or yeah, there's, something? Yeah, there's actually 
actually quite a few of them, including uh, one from my class and a couple of other contemporaries. Maybe uh, most of them have just made better life decisions than I have. Uh, or it may be that uh, perhaps our most esteemed fellow graduate, uh, Senator Eagleton, yes. set the bar so high that, uh, that not as many people thought it was uh, going to be possible to match that. So let's kind of talk about like your political path. You mentioned that you, you used to work for both Governor Nixon when he was attorney general and uh, former Governor Bob Holden. You, you were working for him when he was governor. He's now former governor. And then, you know, there was the, your decision making about not running for county council and then running for the Missouri House. Why did you decide to kind of jump into electoral politics? Well, you know, I had spent a couple of years in Jefferson City and I had done public policy before that. And one of the things that I learned from working as a staff person, you know, if you if you care deeply and passionately about public policy and about the issues of the day, and you want to find someone to support in electoral politics who's always going to agree with you, who shares the same passions, who's always going to support the issues you want and always going to vote the way you want them to vote, sooner or later the only way to do that is to be the person who runs for office yourself and casts the votes yourself. So um, what made you decide? I mean, there was a lot of speculation. You were a rising star in the um, state house. Of course, it was already under Republican control. But what made you decide to shift over and run for county assessor when the General Assembly, county assessor used to be in a point of post. The General Assembly, under some pressure over uh, assessments, voted to make it an elective post. And, of course, the voters also had to agree, which they did. Uh, what made you decide then to, uh, some had think, thought you might run for the state senate at some point, to instead run for county assessor in 2010? I covered that race, but I always wondered about what prompted you to actually do it. Well, north of 70% of the people of St. Louis County voted to make the assessor's office an elected position for the first time in 50 years. And that wasn't by accident. It was because there were real concerns about accountability, real concerns about fairness, real concerns about the independence of the office. And to a guy like me who cares deeply about things like fairness and about things like, you know, trying to do the job of government right and in a responsible way, that seemed like a tremendous opportunity. And I'm not saying it was an easy choice because I, I cared deeply about the stuff that I was fighting for and about in Jefferson City. But this was one of those opportunities to directly impact a branch of government that tangibly affects every single human being in the county's life. And that just doesn't come very often. Yeah. And in, in, in your role as county assessor, I mean, you were talking about all the different things that it, uh, it affects and the lives that are impacted by it. But of course, one of the I cover education typically, I mean, School districts, I mean, most of their money comes from property taxes. So tell me about the, the, the relationship between property taxes and just basic services. Well, what those, what those school districts and what the fire departments, which are also paid for by property sure. taxes, what they understand innately is that if somebody takes advantage of the system, if somebody gets a little bit too cute, doesn't play by the rules, tries to get a tax windfall, what's the result? The result is one of two things. Either the school district lays off a teacher, mm -hmm. or the school district raises taxes by a dollar or two on everybody else to compensate for it. And the St. Louis County Assessor's Office is the one institution that has the power to pick some of those fights when you find yourself in a situation where someone's trying to avoid paying their fair share. And so 
whether the school districts thought that uh, they needed to pay that much attention to the new assessor or not, I imagine a lot of them did when, you know, for example, I found myself in a big, ugly fight with our friendly neighborhood casinos, mm-hmm. right? Nobody, nobody really looks forward in politics. Like, if you're going to pick a big, well-connected political entity to be in a fight <laughs> with, I don't recommend casinos. Yeah, just yeah. asked uh, County Executive Steve Stanger how that worked out, because I think right when he was elected, he got into a very public fight with a casino that made a lot of news. So, but, so there I would, you go. I would not characterize the experience as a fun one. But here's the thing. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before. Think about the River City Casino in South County. If uh, they had received the multi-million dollar tax windfall that at one point a county board wanted to give them, probably every man, woman, and child in the Lime area is looking at an extra $100, $150 per person or per small business in tax burden. And what does that really mean? That really means a senior citizen on a fixed income somewhere who's taxed out of her home. I may not know who that individual is, but if I don't pick that fight, if I don't say, you know, just because you're the big boys on the block, you don't have the right to get treated differently than everybody else. Yeah, and you've used your position to to advocate for some different things. In in particular, you know, I I remember, I think it was a couple of years ago, you were at at an event in uh, North St. Louis talking about the environment and talking about the effect that um, climate change and perhaps extreme weather has on on residents uh, in, in St. Louis County. You've used your position in different ways. I have to tell you, uh, if you had asked me to predict four years ago, um, as St. Louis County Assessor, what issues do you think you'll be talking about? Climate change probably wouldn't right. have been high on the list. But the Good Friday tornado happened two days after I was sworn into office in 2011. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can uh, you can bury your head in the sand all you want and try to deny the impact of changes to the weather and changes to the climate of the planet, but I see the real-world consequences. The real-world consequences are roofs lifted off of people's homes without a place to live. And I'm realistic. I'm the county assessor. I control a small piece of the process. But one thing I can make sure is that if you're a victim of a natural disaster— the last thing you should have to worry about the next day is an unfair tax bill. Now, as county assessor, because you're now in your in your fourth year after getting reelected last That's right. fall, are there particular things in the office that either surprised you or where you didn't think you'd be spending so much time doing X, but you are? Because obviously you're spending most of your time in an office, not out talking about climate change. Um, if you had asked me... Uh, in 2011, do you think you'll be spending a lot of time on agricultural policy as the county assessor? I would have said, are you nuts? But it turns out that as I discovered when I came into office, St. Louis County had a little bit of an epidemic of fake farmers, Uh, people who throw winter wheat seeds on the strip mall parking lot and say, look, this parking lot median is now a farm. Give me, uh, give me the tax advantage that the state of Missouri gives to farmers. Okay, so so far, just so the listeners understand, farmers get a lower... Farmers pay a lower tax rate across the state of Missouri than commercial businesses or residential homeowners. And the legislature, in its wisdom, has decided to give farmers a break. And maybe you like that or maybe you don't like that public policy, but it's the law of the land. But the issue is that the guy who owns the P.F. Chang's in Chesterfield, whatever he is, he is probably not a simple man of the earth. And even if he plants a couple of apple trees on a grassy, undeveloped plot just north of the parking lot, that doesn't change the fact that he's still not Farmer Joe. Uh, So, no, I wouldn't have expected uh, (laughs) to have to spend a lot of time worrying about what is and isn't a farm in St. Louis County. 
But yeah, if there's if there's one thing I've learned in this job is there's no shortage of creative games that people will try to play if they think there's a buck in it for them. But, you know, the vast majority of people in St. Louis County, they want to do the right thing. They want to pay their fair share. They just want to know that everybody's being treated the same. They want to know that everybody gets the same deal, whether the property's worth 50000 or whether it's worth $5 million. Now, you know, one of the other things that occurred during the last four years is, is the collapse of the real estate market in some parts of the county. Now, the economy has obviously gotten a little bit better, but some parts of the county, especially North St. Louis County, has just, I think, been devastated by foreclosures and whatnot. And uh, you were obviously around when the county council and the county executive signed a foreclosure mediation ordinance. Uh, Tim was there as Mm -hmm. well. It got struck down both by a court and by the legislature. Uh, What was kind of your takeaway from that entire episode of the county trying to do something legislatively? And as assessor, um, what do you think needs to be done kind of to prepare the county for another wave of foreclosures that what happened in the the late 2000s, early 2010s. Well, Tim, you were there, so you may remember the chart I presented to the county council. I was council. there, too. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, Jason. Um, I, don't, and... I don't want to be left out here. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting next to each other, if we, I remember. We were. Yeah. So, but continue. Um, the, and the data that I gathered to put that together is actually the most powerful thing that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. If you looked at that chart, and there were red dots, yellow dots, and green dots. And a red dot was a, uh, was a true foreclosure, was a bank sale of property to an investor. And a yellow dot was a distressed sale to a real human being who actually wanted to live in the home. And a green dot is a normal sale of real estate between two disinterested parties. What I saw when you put all those on a map is you saw clusters in not just North County, but parts of South County, too, of those red and those yellow dots. And in the same places where you find the red and the yellow dots, that's also where you find challenged and struggling schools. And that's also where you find instances of poverty. And it's also where you find higher rates of crime. And it's also where you find all the sorts of things that are of like deep and important concern to the community. A foreclosure is not just an individual tragedy for a human being who loses their house, though plainly it is. It is also a tragedy for the surrounding community because when investors take over properties that used to be owned by homeowners, as often as not, the result is that neighborhoods aren't as well maintained, that you see vandalism, that you see the sorts of things that bring everybody else's property values down. And if we have learned nothing else from this terrible economic crisis, what we ought to learn is that anything we can be doing as a community to prevent foreclosures, to keep people in their homes, to establish negotiation processes, to get people to sit down at the table and work it out, to figure out who the human being at the bank is that has the authority. Whatever government has the authority to do, whatever the private sector has the authority to do, we got to be prepared for it the next time because it's too devastating. Now, the, the, the whole Ferguson unrest has had an impact on property values in North County. I mean, fair or unfair, that's been, it's a fact. Is that accurate, first of all? Well, I have relatives up there, so I mean, no. But but this is the assessor, so I want to know if that assumption is true. Um, 
it hasn't entirely been borne out in terms of actual sales of real estate since all of those terrible events happened, but there also haven't been that many sales of real estate since those events happened. So it may be a little early to say. The assessment process is inherently backward-looking. I have to decide this year's values based on the last two years' worth of data because state law tells me to value property based on what you could have sold it for on January 1st of this year. Yeah, because I've been seeing that. I mean, I have relatives that live in Florissant, and I mean, and and you're seeing that. And like, if you look on Zillow, mm-hmm. you'll see. You know, and I, I'm not saying it's fair or unfair. But, but I think it does kind of influence people, whether they put their house in the market or whatever. As an assessor, how do you deal with some of that? So a great concern of mine, and this is more broad than just the specific part of the community that you're talking about, is that as the economy seems to be turning around, the rising tide has not necessarily lifted all boats. And uh, if you look at property values in the Clayton School District and property values in the Riverview Gardens or the Normandy School District, I guarantee you that you're not going to see the same kinds of percentage changes this next time around. Even as values, thank God, are finally starting to recover and people are finally starting to get back some of the value that they put into their homes and some of their equity, that's not happening consistently throughout St. Louis County. And that's a real challenge for the region because the home is the most important investment that somebody makes. And... It's the centerpiece of strong communities. It ties into education. It ties into public safety. It ties into everything. But oh, but okay. I think, okay, if, if you look at, because the schools and everybody else we've been talking about re- rely, on the, the, rely on the assessments and the money that comes from the property taxes. If, if assessments go down in one area, fair or unfair, does it automatically have to go up in another area in order for the county to overall collect the same or or what I'm glad you asked that question because that's a that's a common misconception okay. and the and the answer is no. Uh my job, I am not the tax man. It is not my job to get money for the schools or the fire departments. It's my job uh to be the umpire and to call the balls and strikes as I see them, which means it's my job to take the best educated guess at what your home could actually have sold for on January 1st of this year. And you do justice and you let the chips fall where they may. And sometimes uh, sometimes school districts like what they hear and sometimes they don't. And sometimes large commercial taxpayers like what they hear and sometimes they don't. But if I get into the business of saying, my job is to make you pay enough taxes to make the fire department happy, that's just as bad as if I get into the business of saying to the casino, let's make a deal, how low a number would make you happy. My job isn't to make anybody happy. My job is to do it fairly and to make sure that we are valuing all property using the same consistent, fair methods, no matter who you are. So let's move into uh, the political arena. Um, I'm not going to use the whole politically and politically speaking, although by saying I'm not doing that, I just did. Um, you have decided to run for attorney general as a Democrat. Um, why did you decide to get in the race? For the same reasons that I got into the race for county assessor and some of the same stuff that's motivated me throughout my public service career, which is I care about fairness. I care about making sure everybody is treated the same under the law. And look, there are only so many opportunities to be Missouri's top law enforcement official. At a time like this, 
when the Jefferson City is awash in influence peddling and even outright corruption at a time when there is a perception, fair or unfair, that sometimes the moneyed special interests do get a better deal. Sometimes they get treated a little bit better than everybody else does. I think Missouri needs an attorney general who is absolutely committed to fairness, who is absolutely committed to equal justice for everyone, whether you're a multi-million dollar corporation, whether you're a single mom trying to make ends meet. When I was in the attorney general's office, what I did was I prosecuted and sued scammers who took advantage of people. And sometimes that's the home improvement scammer who shows up at a senior citizen's door and says, pay me $1,000 today and I'll show up and work on the roof tomorrow. And then surprise, surprise, they never show up. Or sometimes it's a large cell phone corporation that steals a dollar or two from every bill payer in the region by saying that it was a tax when really it's just an extra fee that they tacked on. Doesn't matter who it is. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And I think the people want an attorney general who understands that. How do you think the current attorney general, Chris Coster, has done in his job? I think he's done a great job of running that office. And I also uh, commend him for the self-imposed ethics rules that he has recently instituted, which are, I believe, among the toughest in the nation. And I think that sets a great example to follow. Now, um, I had some – since you've announced, of course – Prior to that, you have Scott Sifton, a state senator from South County, who's also running, fellow Democrat. I've had some people who say, well, okay, if you have two Democrats running in a primary, that then this will help um, another state senator, um, Kurt Schaefer, who's Republican, who's running from Columbia. Uh, I know that as a candidate, you you try not to get into that. But still, it, it does affect money raising. It affects things within the party. Are, is there a lot of pressure within the Democratic Party right now for either you or Sifton to uh, back off, in effect? Well, elections are a good thing for democracy, and uh, folks who try too hard to avoid elections may be, uh, may be misunderstanding what the American democratic process is about. But in any event, I, I like Scott. I think Scott's a great guy. Uh, but I'm proud to run on my record, and I think I, have, uh, I think I have a pretty good message to convey. You look at what I've actually done, what I've spent my political career doing in the last few years, fighting for real people. But I, I want to bring in um, one thing that, that Senator Sifton said when he was on our podcast. He had been in some tough elections before. He unseated former Senator Jim Lemke. A Republican. And he made this point on our show about why he feels he's a good candidate for this position. I, I've defeated a sitting incumbent a full-term sitting incumbent Republican for the first time in a generation in a district where no candidate has received as much as 51 percent of the vote in the last three cycles. Uh, I think that says something. I'll even say my school board races weren't all that easy. Even the one where the opponent dropped out because the name was still on the ballot, nobody thought there was a reason to show up and vote, and that's actually in some ways a more dangerous scenario. Here's the reason I'm bringing that up. He's trying to make a point that, you know, the attorney general's race is going to be a very difficult one, and I have the experience by running in these tough elections. By contrast, I mean, you ran in a fairly Democratic House district where you didn't have very tough competition. Your first assessor's race, I guess, was somewhat competitive. It was very competitive. I covered it. But frankly, and we talked about this before, you dodged a real bullet by getting a Republican candidate who didn't campaign, who didn't spend money, and who was effectively a placeholder candidate last cycle. So To his point, are you kind of experienced enough in competitive elections to go up against someone like Schaefer, 
who is going to be very aggressive and a very formidable opponent. Well, I'll put my electoral record up against anybody's, and uh, I think it's not an accident that I outperformed the uh, rest of the Democratic ticket in, uh, in St. Louis County by a pretty substantial margin the last time around. But I think the reason for that has nothing whatsoever to do with a political strategy or number crunching. I think it has to do with substance. It has to do with what the people actually want. My theory four years ago when I started running for this office was people wanted a county assessor who was committed to fairness, accountability, independence, and responsiveness, and had the guts to show that he was going to do what it takes to make sure that everybody was treated the same, whether the property was worth $50,000 or $5 million. I submit to you that that's what people want in an attorney general, that they want an attorney general who's committed to fairness, to equal justice for everybody, to transparency in how the law is applied. And I think I have a pretty good record there, and I'm excited to take it to the voters. Now, when we had Senator Schaefer on, he kind of made a dig not only at Senator Shifton, but not Shifton. I'm sorry. Let me repeat that, and I will edit that out. Now, when we had Senator (laughs) Kurt Schaefer on, politically speaking, he made a dig not only against Senator Shifton, but kind of at you as well, although it wasn't direct. Um, Here's what he said. I mean, some people may have a law degree and, and they really don't practice law, but I think, you know, I, I look forward to debating all of this with whoever is in that race and, and letting Missourians know who, uh, who has the credentials for that job and who doesn't. Now, hang on, hang on a second. Are you, are you yeah. saying that neither Jake Zimmerman or Scott Sifton have actually practiced law? Uh, I don't know if they've, I don't know if either one have, have you know, tried cases in a courtroom. Yeah. I mean, I know I have and a whole lot of them. Now, I'm not really sure how interesting the attorney general's race would be if we have like a lawyer off and who's been in the courtroom more. But I have to say- Should we get the law and order uh, sound just to play after that? (laughs) But I have to say when Attorney General Coster ran for attorney general in 2008, he made a very similar argument that he had the courtroom experience and either as a trial attorney or as the prosecutor of Cass County to be hands-on, per se. And he actually promised that he would try some cases himself, which I think that he's done. To, to Senator Schaefer's point, do you have kind of the, the trial experience that he purports to have? Well, I wonder if uh, if Kurt is running for attorney general or for Perry Mason. Uh, but let me tell you what I did in my practice of law. Maybe I'll, j- I'll just tell you one anecdote that will give you a little sense of what my actual legal work in the attorney general's office was about. Um, I prosecuted a case called, uh, we called it the Tech Geeks case internally. The Tech Geeks were a very sophisticated internet business. What they did was uh, they charged you $2,000 for a laptop. You sent them $2,000. They didn't send you a laptop. Uh, And I received this file after uh, an older attorney who had moved on in the office, didn't want to prosecute it, thought this was small potatoes, wasn't worth the office's attention, we're the attorney general's office, we're a big deal. And I looked at this and I said, this is a crime. Straight and simple, $2,000 may sound like small potatoes to the office. It wasn't small potatoes to the student who had the $2,000 stolen who was using that money to buy a laptop because he wanted to finish his degree. Um, So we put an investigator on the case. We did a little bit of digging. We found out who the tech geeks were. And the tech geeks were a young man who uh, lived in his mother's basement in St. Francis County and uh, was running his (laughs) not-so-sophisticated fraud business on the side. Well, that young man went to prison, and uh, we got the victim his money back. 
And, you know, this kind of thing is not rocket science, and it's not, you know, it's not the trial of the century, right? That's a, that's a long ways away from the O.J. Simpson case. But that's the kind of nuts and bolts work that prosecutors in the attorney general's office do, and that's what I did when I was well, there. Well, obviously, if the laptop turns on, you must acquit. Um, let's go through a couple of issues. What's, there was a, what's kind of your, your opinion on a proposed shield law for journalists? Because I know that was an issue that we talked about a lot um, in 2008, it's kind of come up again here in St. Louis because some prosecutors have asked our radio station to, to turn over things and yeah, other outlets other as well. Right. Um, the attorney general now, Chris Coster, was a, a big opponent of it. What's kind of your take on that issue? Well, um, this actually also touches on my historic legal practice um, because when I was in private practice, I represented, um, I believe, Channel 4 and I think also KMOX. Um, when they faced subpoenas from prosecutors where the prosecutors sort of made the fundamental mistake, which is they went looking for the evidence from the media first rather than last. And from my recollection of that case, which is now more than 10 years ago, but my recollection of the case, if there's one thing I know about the way the law is and the way the courts have interpreted it, it's that you want to go after media records when necessary to prove a crime as a last resort not a first resort, because if prosecutors are trying to just say, well, the easiest way to make the case day in and day out, you know, just send a subpoena to the reporter. The reporter's got notes. Over time, that has a chilling effect on the First Amendment and on freedom of speech, and freedom of speech is awfully important. It's up to the legislature to decide what should or shouldn't be done on shield law, and you can look at my voting record on press freedom issues when I was there, but if I'm attorney general, my job is to enforce the law, and that is the law of the land, and I would enforce it. What's your position on the death penalty? Uh, exact same answer to what I just gave you, right? It's the law of the land. My job as the attorney general is to enforce it. But let me say this. Mm -hmm. um, I have participated in an execution. It is probably the most somber and most difficult thing I have ever done in any public service job I've held in the state of Missouri. Anyone who thinks that this is an easy issue, anyone who has a quick, glib answer to it, doesn't understand how significant it is when the state enacts the ultimate punishment when the state chooses to take someone's life. The thing about the death penalty is there's no givebacks, there's no do-overs, and if that is going to be the law of the land and if the legislature in its wisdom continues to say that that is the ultimate punishment, then it's the responsibility of the attorney general and everybody else on down to make sure that it is applied consistently and fairly and with an absolute commitment to equal justice. What about, what about the issue of, of foreclosures? I mean, we were talking earlier about foreclosure mediation um, and requiring that lenders enter into some kind of uh, process by which they would have to sit down with someone uh, and, and try and work something out, potentially. Um, of course, you know, you can't make laws as attorney general, but you can investigate things. Is that something that should be looked into, the process by which um, different lenders are foreclosing on residents in the state of Missouri? If and when a bank takes advantage of a consumer or of a person that they've lent money to, if they break Missouri's consumer fraud statute or any other law that governs their conduct, then that needs to be examined very closely. Uh, one of the most significant issues that came up during this foreclosure crisis was that oftentimes a consumer, uh, a person at home, couldn't even figure out who to talk to. 
Um, the company that they got the loan from may have sold the loan to three different entities by now. It may have been packaged into a complicated transaction, and the mortgage servicer isn't the same person who owns the debt, et cetera. But you know what? The person worried about losing their home doesn't care who owns the debt versus who the mortgage servicer is. They want to know who's the human being they can talk to who can make this right, who can figure out if there's a way for them to stay in their home. And I would hope that every policymaker in Missouri is committed to making sure we can do everything we can. Is to that keep something that the homes. attorney general's office should take a closer look at? To the extent that um, the Missouri attorney general has the tools under Missouri law to enforce laws that apply to that, absolutely. Because I know that uh, Coster has looked at some mortgage companies and some of the other providers of mortgages. I mean, it's not just banks, as you know. It's variety of financial institutions that provide mortgages and who either foreclose or go after it or not. Do you think that Missouri's uh, laws as it stands now are, is it up to just enforcing what what we have or does there need to be a different um, legislative approach on how to deal with things like this? Well, plainly, Missouri's, uh, Missouri's lending laws are not perfect, and the obvious example there would be payday lending, right? I mean, it's a, it's a step removed from what you're talking about in terms of foreclosures, but Missouri has among the laxest rules in the country for some of the most abusive types of loans that target the lowest income people in our society. And that makes me pretty deeply uncomfortable. And to the extent that I can advocate for the legislature to change that law, I certainly will. But within the confines of what the law is, the bottom line is nobody should be gaming the system, and especially nobody should be gaming the system to make a buck at the expense of someone struggling to keep their home. And if someone isn't playing by the rules, it's the job of the attorney general to enforce the law and make sure they do. Now, the attorney general's race is likely to be an expensive one, especially if there is a primary. Uh, you have been known in the past as being a pretty strong fundraiser. Uh, Coster, as you mentioned, has put in some uh, voluntarily voluntary restrictions on how he's going to raise money. Are there any restrictions that you're going to impose on yourself uh, as far since you're running for that office as far as either patterning what he's done, or do you feel because there's other rivals and they may or may not be doing that that doesn't make sense, especially because Schaefer may self fund part of it? I'm just he, he already has self funded yeah. and so has Sifton. Yes, I know, but but my point is, do you see that as being a negation factor on this? Just how do you see the money raising part of this, which is going to be crucial? Well, I'm confident that I'll have the resources I need to run a successful campaign. Because the reason you raise money in politics is so you can get your message out. And that's what it's about here. What it's about is ultimately not the dollars in the bank. It's about whether people have the opportunity to hear what you have to say. I want to talk to people about justice, fairness, and transparency. And yes, in my time, I've, uh, I've turned down a campaign contribution or two in circumstances where I didn't think it was appropriate to accept it. And as you know, um, I don't accept any gifts whatsoever from lobbyists and all of those freebies that Jefferson City is awash in. I have, I've said no to since the beginning of my political career. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of my, my record on that front, obviously. But at the end of the day, I think what the people of Missouri and the voters care about is they care about what someone is going to bring to the table if they hold this elective office. And I think someone who's committed to fighting for fairness and equal justice is what they're looking for. We're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, we've hit the crucial 35-minute wall on this show. 
So I want to thank you very much for, for coming to our show and providing us with your insight and slightly good humor. Um, to read all of our stories, go to stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis, and it's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. You can follow Tim on Twitter at... Tim S. Lloyd. Now let me guess, your Twitter handle, handle is at Jake... Mountain Goats fans sixty seven. Mm, you're you're so close. I think I think it's actually at Jake for STL Co. But you're better off following me on Facebook. Yes. Uh, not everybody in this world is uh, as obsessed with Twitter as I am. We'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening and so long. Mm-hmm.